0: Today, the Sunday before October 31st every year is what's called Reformation Sunday. And we never ever talk about it here because we're not a reformed doctrine church, a Calvinist or Lutheran or Presbyterian. But I want to remark on it today because it is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And so I want to tell that story, and I want to tell you the history of it, but also how it relates to today and what it means for us, because it isn't just a history lesson. It is important that you know what happened and who our forefathers and mothers are in the church, but but it's also very relevant to today. So we're going to start with this man named Martin Luther, who was a Catholic monk. He was walking home one night in a thunderstorm and lightning struck real close to him. Uh, He was a law student at the time. Lightning struck real close to him and in a fit of panic, he promised God that if he got home alive, he would become a monk. So he dropped out of law school and went into church school and his father was very upset about that, but he kept his word. Honorable guy. So he becomes a monk and a university professor in Germany. But in his overactive conscience, he was known as a person who was constantly overanalyzing himself and his life. And he was constantly in fear that he had forgotten some sin to confess and that he was damned and he didn't know it. The Catholic Church at that time taught that you had to pay for your own sins. And if you didn't do works of penance in this life, you would be sent to purgatory where you would be tormented until you had paid for your sins and then you would get, to go, get released to go to heaven. Medieval Catholics, they would go on pilgrimages, they would say a certain number of prayers or they would venerate a certain saint for a certain amount of time or they would visit a shrine or they would whip themselves in some cases. They would do all sorts of things to pay for their sins and Martin Luther was tormented by a guilty conscience, that he could never get clean. His confessor, the priest that he went to to confess his sins, told him at one point, he said, if you want Jesus to forgive you for something, you need to come with something he needs to forgive instead of all these stupid little things. I mean, he annoyed everyone around him. So it drove him to the scriptures. And, he, and the Bible at that time is only in Latin, but since he was an educated uh, monk and university professor, he knew Latin, so he could read the Bible for himself, unlike almost anybody else, he began to read the Bible and he's reading one day in Romans and he said, a light struck me in my heart and we would call it being born again in our language. That's not what he uses the language, but that's Jesus' words. He said, light struck me in my heart and I, when he came across the verse that said, the just shall live by faith when he, re- he reads this passage and he realized that to be justified before God, I have to have faith in Jesus Christ. I am not trying to pay for my own sins. I'm not trying to cleanse my own conscience. My faith is in that Jesus Christ paid for my sins. He came to what we would call faith and he did that too. He said, I, I realized I have to have faith in Jesus and faith is to be assured of what we do not see or feel. So he's got to be sure that Jesus Christ's death is enough to pay for my sin, even though I don't feel like it, or I'm not seeing that that's happening right now. It's faith in Jesus Christ is what he came to. And he realized that he did not have to pay for his own sins. He could not pay for his own sins. He had to have faith in Jesus Christ. And he was born again. That's his conversion experience. But what it led to was that as he studied the scripture, trying to find the answer for his conscience to cleanse himself before God, he read the entire Bible numerous times. And what he came to discover, he realized that the Catholic church that he had grown up in and the things he was teaching his own students were not in scripture. And he began to have Now not a personal conscience issue with his own salvation before God, but now his conscience began to eat at him. I am teaching things the church taught me, but they're not in the Bible. There were several things that he came to understand that the Catholic Church of the 1400s and the 1500s was totally not in Scripture. Things that they were doing that were extraneous. And one of the things that he had a beef with was that the church sold indulgences. They were pieces of paper that were basically get-out-of-jail-free cards. You could buy an indulgence for money, and it said, your sins are forgiven. And I don't know if they were supposed to present this to St. Peter when they met him at the gates. or I have no idea. But an indulgence was a paper you could purchase your forgiveness of sins. And the Pope just conferred forgiveness upon you. And the church made a lot of money getting people to buy their salvation. The church was fantastically rich and the peasants that were being hoodwinked were very poor and sometimes they were giving their life savings thinking they were being saved from hell. And Martin Luther reads scripture and he realizes salvation is in faith only in Jesus Christ and he realizes this is completely nowhere in scripture. The church is lying to people and it really began to eat on his conscience. He'd never... Had thought anything of it before but now that he's read the scripture for himself and he realizes that this is not right it begins to eat on him he's like we have to do something about this so as he reads scripture he realizes that the church is selling salvation not only were people able to buy an indulgence for their own sin you could buy an indulgence for a dead relative or friend that had already died and you could pay to get them out of purgatory and then the church was making so much money that the kings and the noblemen all through Europe, saw how much money the church was making and that people would very happily give up their money to buy forgiveness of sins, that kings and princes and dukes and the like got permission from the church to sell indulgences to raise money for them to build a bigger castle or to build a canal or a bridge or whatever. They were taxing people, preying on their fear of hell to get their money so that the rich could live richer. And Martin Luther realized this is a huge problem. Other things that he saw going on in his world that was totally run by the Catholic Church, because that's the only kind of Christianity there was, this is 1,500 years after Jesus, 500 years ago from us. So it may seem like 500 years ago is a long time, but he's closer to us than he is Jesus by a long shot. He saw that every individual Christian is a saint. There is no such thing as sainthood. The Pope cannot forgive sin, and the Pope cannot make people saints. And praying, venerating those saints, borders on idolatry. said, so we cannot have this. We're not praying to any other person for our salvation, or for answers, or help than Jesus Christ. We don't pray to Mary, and we don't pray to saints. He also had an issue with other doctrines that really don't matter, but it mattered a big deal to them at the time, was Whether, when we take communion, whether the bread and the wine actually become the physical flesh and blood of Jesus or whether it's symbolic by faith. And there was issues with that. There was just, he just noticed as he read scripture and his heart is born again, he notices that the church that he is a part of, he's a cog in the wheels and system here, is that the church is just generally corrupt. The mixture of government and Catholic church was so tight that it's hard to tell where one ended and the other began because all the kings were catholic and the pope had more governmental authority than most governments he realizes the whole thing is generally corrupt the whole thing is wickedly wealthy and they're earning their money off the backs of the peasants preying on their fear of hell there was gross nepotism if you're not familiar with that word it means giving positions to friends and family who that they're not qualified for Popes would appoint their brothers or their friends into cardinal positions, and these men were not necessarily godly at all. There was also simony. If you're not familiar with that word, simony is selling church office positions. The popes would sell cardinal positions and priest positions to the highest bidder. And the name simony comes from the man Simon in the book of Acts, who tried to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter. And so it's called simony. There was just general distrust. The pope at the time, his name was Leo X. By the standards of the day, he's a generally good guy. No, Actually, he had some integrity. He was a halfway godly guy. But the man man who was two popes before him during uh, Martin Luther's lifetime, you know, they're supposed to be this celibate priest, and he had at least six kids by six different women and possibly quite a few more in secret. I mean, just the whole thing was a cesspool, a swamp. It was just a mess. And Martin Luther, as he reads scripture, he sees how far his church and the system that had been created over 1500 years how far that had gotten from the gospels in the book of acts and so 500 years ago today he is working on a piece of paper writing out what is called the 95 thesis and he writes out these 95 doctrinal statements that he wants to debate he is a university professor and he wants to have a debate And it was nothing revolutionary, it was nothing rebellious, people did this all the time. They would write up a debate topic on the university campus and they would put it in a public place. In his case, he nails it to the church door and he says, this is what I believe and I will debate anybody at such and such time and place who wants to come and debate me. It was done all the time. It wasn't revolutionary. He wasn't fighting the Catholic Church. He didn't mean to break away. Uh, there had been lots of other reformers before. John Wycliffe was 100 years before this in England. He had tried to get the Bible translated into English so that everybody could read the Bible for themselves. The church didn't like that idea at all. They wanted to be able the priest to be able to tell people you know, what the church wanted them to say rather than what scripture. Uh, he was in prison for a time. John Huss was burned at the stake. Uh, Peter Waldo, I believe, was beheaded or burned at the stake. There were people who had tried to reform, but they had, they had never had any intention of creating a different and new brand of Christianity. It was impossible to even imagine that. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. But he just says, the system is broken. We need to fix it. We need to address these issues. We need to have these debates. So what he did was nothing new, and it wasn't rebellious. It was just, we need to fix these problems. We got big problems. The 95 theses are 95 statements mostly just one sentence statements that he's he's lining out his beliefs and number one issue he wants to address is the pope cannot forgive sin the church is selling forgiveness of sin and he spends quite a bit of time on the fact that you are setting up people to be damned because they're putting their faith in the indulgence instead of jesus christ they're putting their faith in the word of the pope they're forgiven rather than going to jesus christ So most of the 95 Theses are about that, about indulgences being sold. But there's also uh, some discussion of justification by faith in Jesus, the veneration of saints. He said all individual believers are saints. There are no special saints uh, who become so after they die and they can somehow answer our prayers in a way that Jesus can't. He also addresses several other issues like what's called transubstantiation, the doctrine that when you put the bread and the wine in your mouth, it becomes the blood and body of Jesus. And there was debate about that, but that wasn't new either. So he writes these up. So what what happened that was different when he nailed these to the door 500 years ago on Tuesday? What happens that's different than Wycliffe and Huss and Waldo and others who had tried to reform the church? The difference is that the printing press had been invented just a few years before and the press from the very beginning loves a controversy and they love to (laughs) stir it up so gutenberg got his hands on the 95 thesis which martin luther had written in latin and he they translated to german and they print it and send it all over germany and within two to four weeks of the 95 thesis most of the germans who could read had read it and everybody who couldn't there was only six percent literacy at the time (coughs) everybody had had it read to them and all these german catholics read martin luther's ideas about the corruption and the financial lavish lives of the priests and the cardinals and the pope and they're living off the backs of the peasants and and that the pope can't forgive sin that's not in the bible and they'd never heard any of that before all they'd heard was what the priest told them which was indulgences, it was confess to a priest, it was receive forgiveness and last rites, it was pray to the saints, they can answer your prayers. They'd never heard any of these ideas before. And within a month, almost everybody in Germany had heard these debate topics in their own language and they kind of said, yeah, what about all that? The difference was the printing press. Now, there were other things playing. There were some German noble princes that had a beef with the king and since the king was Catholic it was politically convenient for them to use Luther's ideas to rebel against the king and so it just happened that there was some governmental people with authority who had standing armies and castles who could protect Luther uh, once he became an outlaw. I'm getting a little ahead of myself but there were other issues why the Reformation gained traction At the time that it did, when other reformers in the past had tried but had failed, the Catholic Church was used to priests and monks and professors bringing up issues and debating them. They weren't a closed off system, but but mostly they just ignored them and let them say what they wanted and didn't do anything about it. Some of the reformers, though, they did bring about real reform in the Catholic Church. In the past, in the early centuries of the church, there was great reform from Gnosticism and other ideas that snuck in in the very earliest centuries. The Council of Nicaea is, is true. It's great it's doctrine that the church had to address to reform itself. So it wasn't, there was never a time... In what gets mistakenly called the Dark Ages, there was never a time when there weren't real Christians. All right? It wasn't this totally corrupt where nobody knew the truth, nobody read the Bible, and everybody just fell into this corrupt, broken system. But what was different this time is the printing press, was that the ideas got spread and got outside of the closed circle of university professors and priests arguing amongst themselves. That was the difference. So as the ideas begin to spread, the Pope hears about this monk up in Germany named Martin Luther. And like most anybody else that had different ideas, okay, well, we'll see how this plays out. And sometimes they ignored them, and other times they would call them in and have a church trial, and they might even be burned at the stake or beheaded. But at first, Pope Leo X ignores Martin Luther. What happened happened so fast that... They lost control of it. He was brought in by some German nobles who used his ideas to rebel against their Catholic king. And the public got wind that there was somebody in power and authority in the church who was on their side. And things took on a life of their own really, really quick. And eventually, the German king sends a letter to the pope and says, you got to do something about this Martin Luther guy. He is destroying my country. My noblemen are aligning with him uh, to fight me. And my public is there was was uprisings against taxes and things that people were using Luther's ideas to justify rebellion. But eventually, Luther is pronounced a criminal outlaw and there's a price put on his head. The German nobles who are siding with him keep him safe in their castles, and so he can't get touched. Then there was a meeting in a city in Germany called Worms. It looks like worms in English. There's a meeting called, and he was given safe passage, meaning you will not be arrested on the way. You're welcome to present your defense of your ideas, and we will not arrest you and execute you. At this meeting, so he goes to what is called the diet of it looks like diet of worms in English, but it's the diet of worms. And uh, he goes to this meeting and he defends his position on why the pope cannot forgive sin; he does not have that authority. Why we should not be praying to saints, uh, and why indulgences are completely uh, wrong, and several other things that. And they listen. Gets he is allowed to go back home when the results of the meeting are sent to the pope. They decide to excommunicate him, and he is kicked out of the Catholic Church, which in their view means you're damned to hell, your sins cannot be forgiven, you're, you're done. You're, We've excommunicated you. But there was already such a, a critical mass, a critical momentum with Lutheranism in Germany that it didn't matter. At this meeting, he is, he, there's a famous quote I want you to read from what he said in his defense about how he had arrived at his doctrines. He said, "'Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason,' I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. When he said that, he is literally in peril of his own life. He had absolutely no idea that he was going to succeed in anything. He's inside of a very corrupt system where there is religion and government mixed and the people he's talking to have the right to execute him for saying this. And he said it anyway. You've got to understand this. We know him as a hero of history, a very famous figure, a man who succeeded in what he did. But there were a lot of men that, and some women that paid with their lives for this very same thing. He stood in front of them and said, I only accept the authority of Scripture." So he's declared an outlaw and he's excommunicated. And what we now know as the Protestant Reformation begins. It's called Protestant because it's from the word protest. But protest has nothing to do with anarchy and chaos and riots as it does in America today. Protest doesn't even mean to speak against something. The word protest literally means pro means for or in favor of something. And test is short for testify. To protest means to speak up in favor of something. It doesn't mean to rebel or to riot or even to argue against something, which is all of what protest means now in modern American English. But protest means to speak up in favor of something. But it's called the Protestant Reformation because they were protesting the Catholic Church and reformation as in reform. This train has gotten so far off the tracks we got to start over and build a new engine. We're reforming, we are rebuilding, we are starting over with what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Martin Luther certainly was not the only one. Uh, you may have heard of John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland There was John Knox in Scotland who led a national revival. He was known as a very angry, grouchy man, but he was a fireball for God, and he brought Scotland to revival uh, in the 1500s. He was an awesome guy. There was William Tyndale in England who was burned at the stake for trying to translate the Bible into English. He was declared an outlaw, and he escaped to Germany. He continued to translate the Gospels into English so that he said, he said, I want every English plowboy to be able to read the Scripture and not just receive teaching from a priest. He eventually was arrested in Germany, brought back to England, declared a heretic, and burned at the stake. There were many other people who led the Reformation as well as Martin Luther, but he's the most famous. He's, the, he's where it all began, and so he's the one that most people know about. 500 years ago, Tuesday, it all began. The Reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther, tried to work together, but they disagreed on some things to the point that they couldn't. It was kind of like once the cat's out of the bag that I read the scripture for myself and decide what I believe, then lots of people did that. And so there are other groups that form in France. There was the Anabaptists, which are the ancestors of the Mennonites, and the Hutterites. Uh, the Anabaptists were treated terrible by the Lutherans and the Calvinists, uh, there and the Catholics. They were, they were treated horrible. There was uh, the Moravians in Eastern Europe. Uh, they're an awesome group, uh, fantastic group of people that you need to look up and read about. There was the Anglican Revolution and Reformation in England, but that was more about King Henry the Eighth and his sins than it was about. Uh, reforming any church into righteousness and so the puritans came in and in less than 100 years and 50 years from luther the puritans are working in england they're cast out and they come to north america as the pilgrims for religious freedom so all of this directly relates and one event leads to another and there was quite a few different groups even in these groups that disagreed on specific doctrines to the point that there were actual battles between the lutherans and the calvinists and the Catholics and the Lutherans, and there was bloodshed on both sides, in both directions. People were not afraid to die for what they believed. It kind of sh- makes us shake our head by, um, in our culture today, but, but there is, it's just amazing. But even though they dif- disagreed profoundly on some issues, there are three foundational doctrines that come out of the Protestant Reformation that are really important. And number one is that justification by faith alone not works of penance that we cannot pay for our sin we are saved by jesus christ alone and not only can we not be good enough to pay back our sin to try to do to earn our salvation is a sin to try to pay god back is an insult to jesus jesus i realize that you died for me and you took the penalty for my sin but not all of it i have to do a little bit of something No, we have to obey Jesus Christ, but we do not pay Jesus Christ. Hello? Okay, Justification by faith alone is something that that was created. The idea of the doctrine was created. Of course, it's in Scripture, but it was lost real early in church history. And it was reformed in the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. Another one is sola scriptura. You've never heard that term from me before, but sola scriptura is Latin. that means only Scripture. That the scripture is the only authority there is. No one else may forgive sin. No one else may define truth. The Bible alone. A quote from Luther at his trial. The true rule is this. God's word shall establish articles of faith and no one else. Not even an angel can do so. The doctrine of scripture alone is the authority. Comes out of the Protestant Reformation and Eventually, what is created is what we would call freedom of religion or the freedom of conscience, that each individual person not only is saved individually by faith in Jesus, but I have the right to follow my conscience, to obey God, and to worship Him as I see it in Scripture. Hello? In the Constitution, that's called the freedom of religion. It's number one on the list in our Bill of Rights. The Catholic Church, in response to this, had what is known as the Counter-Reformation. The Jesuits were formed to fight the Protestants. There were people in the Catholic Church who responded against the Protestants by becoming more Catholic. We're going to be uber-Catholics. The Jesuits, there are other orders of monasteries, like the Dominicans and the Franciscans, but the Jesuits are the ones that were formed during the Protestant Reformation in what is called the Counter-Reformation, and they are the ones that performed the Spanish Inquisition, trying to root out Protestants and Jews from Spain, which was a Catholic stronghold at the time. The Jesuits uh, came with the French to North America. They converted people to Catholicism, but mostly at the point of the sword. Uh, They were were the uber-Catholics. There were wars between Catholics and Protestants, between Protestants and each other, between Catholic kings that thought each one was not Protestant or Catholic enough. I mean, th- things went nuts for a while. By the hundreds and even thousands, there were monks and nuns that had taken a vow of poverty and chastity to try to earn their salvation. And when they hear Luther's ideas and they find out that's not in Scripture, well, why am I being living in poverty and celibacy? And so by the thousands, monks quit and just walked out of the monastery. Nuns ran away from the nunneries. Like, well, why are we doing this for? <laughs> if it's not going to earn us any points with God, I'll go be married. So by the thousands, monks and nuns quit. And uh, I don't know if you can use that word. They walked off the job. I don't know how you even call that. So it's just, it's, it's humorous when you take it out of context in our world today, but there's a bunch of monks and nuns marrying each other. Because everybody else was already married, you know, so uh, everybody else their age. So there's one particular story where in Germany there were 10 nuns smuggled out of their uh, nunnery in barrels of herring. You got to be desperate to get out of somewhere if you want to bury yourself in dead fish. They got in the barrels and then they filled them full of herring and they put them in a wagon and they smuggled them out. And these twelve nuns come to Martin Luther and say, "You need to find us some husbands." And he found eleven men who were willing to marry an ex nun. Nacho is not the only one who's had feelings for a nun. So, <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry you're missing out. Uh, <laughs> so these eleven men marry these. Uh, nuns and there's one left her name is Catherine and and Martin Luther finds this really old guy to marry her and he's way older than her and she just flat out refuses no no way I'm not marrying him I will marry you or no one else she tells Martin Luther he's 43 years old she's about the same age she doesn't want to marry an 80 year old man she says I'll marry you no one else and Martin Luther had sworn off that he was going to be a bachelor for the rest of his life. You know, he'd lived as a monk, and that was just what he was used to, and it's what he had expected. And he just, even though he had left the Catholic Church, he was still going to live that way. And, and basically, she forces him to marry her <laughs> out of conscience, like, well, I need a husband. And it's, you know, that's the way it was in the world. And, and uh, so they get married. That's their courtship, is, no, I'm not marrying him. I'm marrying you. And. Okay, but they actually, they were great friends. There was strong love between them, even though their courtship had zero romance. (laughs) A former nun married a former monk, and they hit it off really well, and they loved each other very well. Uh, He wrote a lot. You can read a lot of Martin Luther's writings if you wanted to, and in his writing, he only writes positively of her. He calls her My Rib. Uh, He calls her My Lord Kate. Her name was Catherine. He He refers to her as My Lord Kate he refers to her as the mistress of the pig market um, because they raised pigs You and she had to they had quite a household which we'll talk about later but he called her Mrs. Dr. Luther. Anyway he was they they got along great they were a great partnership tell you more about that as it comes. The Reformation ideas spread through Germany more people leave the Catholic Church to become what were began to be called Lutherans people who followed Luther's teachings and writings and 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 that happened enough in the upper classes with the nobility that there came to be governmental protection and Lutherans were not outlawed and executed anymore uh, within a decade or so. They were fairly safe in Germany. It spread into Denmark, Norway, Sweden. Those became the strongholds of the Lutheran church. And if your family line is from those lines, you probably have Lutheran history. If you have Norwegian or Swedish or Danish uh, last name or your great-grandma did. In those countries, German, uh, Lutherans were protected, and, and in England, you, you know, they switched back and forth several times, but Anglican and Catholic, and in France, there was the Anabaptists, but they were, the Catholics tried hard to kill them off. But there was all these different groups, and eventually, over years and years, decades and centuries, uh, we arrive at the world we have today. There are things that we enjoy and think are normal and take for granted. Just, this is the way it is and this is the right way it is that no one thought before the Reformation. There, what we are living in in what we would call civilization and even the rule of law even American government is the direct descendant the fruit of the Protestant Reformation. I want to go through this list here things that we just take for granted that did not happen before the Reformation and they happened because of the Reformation and number one of them is that you can read your Bible vernacular means your native language The, the fact that we have Bibles in every language almost now we're just about getting done every language in the world is a Protestant idea because Luther said we cannot come to faith on forgiveness of sin through a priest. We have to know Jesus Christ individually and personally. And if that's going to happen, then everybody needs to be able to read the gospel for themselves and come to their own individual personal faith and not just repeat what was told to them by the priest or the preacher Read your Bibles. Yes. So, Luther worked on translating the Bible into German. I told you about Tyndale trying to translate it in English. There were people that translated it into Slovenian and Russian. And all these reformers translating the Bible as quickly as possible to get it in people's hands. But then they had another problem is that nobody could read. Because there was no education system. There was zero public education system. Since the beginning of history, only the very richest people could hire a teacher for their sons almost never for their daughters but for their sons of the very richest people we would hire somebody like Socrates or Aristotle to teach my son and then he would go on to either work in government and law or the church. Those were the only educated people there were. Everybody else worked on the farm or the mine from the time they were a littlest kid and they did not know how to read and Luther realizes that we have to have public education to teach everyone to read so that they can read the Bible. That is the purpose of public education. He went to the German nobles and he said, you need to pay out of the taxes these peasants are paying, you need to pay for education for every kid so that they can read their Bible. That's the point of public education. It has been totally hijacked and so secularized and ruined by the people of the world. But the public education system was to educate people so that they could know God. That was the root of it. That was the very foundation of everything. Congregational worship, music that we enjoy in the church even still today, from the old hymns to Caleb today, all Christian music is thanks to Catherine Luther. Because in the days before the Protestant Reformation, no one sang in church. There were no songs other than what the priest sang himself. The priest faced away from the congregation, worshiped toward the, the Eucharist or the Mass, He said all the prayers, he sang the music, he read whatever scripture and said whatever he's going to say, and the people just sat there and did nothing. And then when it was time, they got up and they received the bread. They ate the bread, they didn't even get to drink the wine during communion. Only the priest did that. Catherine tells Martin, you know what, in our worship, If we're going to say that everyone should know Jesus and everyone should have individual faith, then everyone should individually, together, be worshiping God. We need to come up with some songs. And Luther wrote lots of hymns. In English, probably the only one you've ever heard of is A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is still sung in Lutheran churches today and and churches that sing old hymns. I doubt if we've ever sung it here. It might have happened once. But... If you go to church or you grew up in a church that sing old hymns, you know that song. That was written by Luther, translated into English. And there are many, many Lutheran hymns that are still sung 500 years later in churches in Germany. They sing the songs that Luther wrote, and he wrote them just because there were no songs. And if you've heard before that he used bar tunes, that's true. But he wasn't a musician, but he wrote the lyrics to contain faith, and doctrine, and people sang scripture and worship, and but the tunes, they just picked the tunes that the drunkards were singing at the bar, and they put Christian words to them. (laughs) So when you gathered at a Lutheran church of the 1500s in Germany, you were singing the same songs you were singing when you were drunk at the bar in your old life, but now you're singing it to Jesus. Freedom of worship. Now, the Protestants fought each other for a long time, but eventually... Let's move it forward and say 250 years later, we arrive at the United States Bill of Rights that says you have the freedom of religion, that everyone should have the freedom of conscience to worship God according to how they read the scriptures and according to their personal faith. We're not going to have Catholics killing Protestants and Protestants killing each other. It didn't happen right at the beginning, but it is absolutely, it is a direct result of the Protestant Reformation is American freedom of religion. And we were the only place in the world that had it for at least 100 years. And eventually, everybody else catches on. And it's still not not everybody, half of the world or more maybe, probably doesn't have freedom of religion at all. But that idea that we take for granted in America is absolutely birthed in the Protestant Reformation. Free governments and this respect of individual property rights and individual freedoms and political rights is absolutely born in the protestant reformation before this the catholic church and the government were one and if you rebelled against one you were rebelling against the other and everybody used their authority to make sure that the serfs served their worked for the betterment of their lord and the church and that was it and eventually not in the 1500s not in the 1600s but eventually over time especially in england and then leading into america eventually the protestant ideas it takes generations for people to realize the the actual logical conclusions of what they believe and they begin to believe okay if, if we believe that that I have the right to worship the way I want and if I and if I have value before God in a way that a saint or a priest has no more or less value in the king I, then I should people should have political rights should have a right to an attorney they should have a right to their own, keep their own property they should have a right to freedom of speech all of that comes from the Protestant Reformation, our individual rights, the value for the common person. The, the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages was still ancient in its mentality in the old world that everybody exists at all, everybody's just a serf for the betterment of the king and the church. And the Protestant Reformation said, no, everybody has the same equal value before God. Yeah. Jesus Christ died for every single person. And everyone has value, and so it took uh, centuries. But eventually, the fruits of those ideas came into the political government sphere and we're still trying to work all that out today. No, it didn't solve it when they wrote the Declaration of Independence or the, or the American Constitution, but the idea is there that is still being fleshed out and played out and corrected and defined. It all started in the Protestant Reformation. The value of the individual Mrs. Luther, uh, Kate, was super creative in her entrepreneurialism. In the, again, in the Catholic Middle Ages, everybody is a serf. You serve your king or your lord, and you serve the church, and everything you do it gets taken away from you to pay for your lord to have a nice house and for the priests to live in opulence in this fancy cathedral. And so when the Lutherans broke away, they had absolutely nothing. They had no economy, they had no infrastructure, they had no businesses, they had nothing. They all, at the beginning, they all lost everything, and Luther is living as an exiled outlaw, hiding away in a castle for several years. Eventually, he has enough safety uh, under the protection of his Lutheran lord that he can come out of hiding and he can live in public. But he and Catherine come out of monasteries where they own no property, they had nothing. And even in the monasteries and the nunneries, when you worked you got, you had taken a vow of poverty. You had nothing. And so when you did work, it all went back to fund the church. And so now they don't have that. They don't have anybody taking care of them and they don't have any property. They've lost everything. And so uh, at the beginnings days, Luther and and his wife, they had like 40, 50, 100 people living with them at a time. People who were exiled or uh, who were Running away from wherever they were from or they'd just come to be his disciple and sit and listen to his teaching and like, I, I want to hear what the scripture actually says and I want to I want to know how you see it so they're, they're they had to feed a lot of people and so Catherine come, uh, says all right we don't have a church to take care of us like we used to. We can't depend on this great big institution to just feed us and take care of us like we did when we were nuns and monks. we got to take care of ourselves. So she plants a garden. She says, everybody who's here who wants to eat, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. So everybody's going to work in the garden. And so everybody worked, and they grew their own food, and they grew so much they had enough to sell, and they got some money. They reinvested that in more property, and they planted bigger fields. And they reinvested that, and eventually she saw the value of Again, the value of the individual, the Protestant value for individual faith and individual value before God. She began to realize we're doing the same thing that the Catholic Church is doing. We're all working together and making everybody just put it back in the pot. She she realized that if, if we give everybody responsibility for themselves and let them have their own business and let them keep their own profit, everybody will be happier. And so she's told everybody, you're all on your own. Work, earn money, have a business, grow a crop, sell your produce, keep your profit. It's the first time anybody had ever thought of that. Somebody could keep their own money? I mean, it's like just basic thought to us, but that was a revolutionary thought that somebody, the church couldn't just take everybody's money. No, they exist to grow food for us. They make money so that we can build bigger, fancier churches. And the kings and nobles like, no, of course, they don't, they don't need anything. They got food. They can, they're alive. No, their money is mine. But it was the Luthers who realized what we would now call free enterprise, profit motive, that's, that your work matters to God and to yourself. And you should be able to keep your own money that you earn not that there shouldn't be taxes in the real sense but that you're you don't work for somebody else just to make sure that they live in luxury you work and you get to keep your own money and so free enterprise was not necessarily a term they would ever have used but what we call the Protestant work ethic absolutely came out of the Protestant Reformation that we went from uh, a mentality of living off the welfare of the church to uh, We've got to make our own way, and we're going to reward people who work hard. They get to keep their own paycheck. Of course, there weren't paychecks, but that system is absolutely a Protestant invention of the time. And lastly is evangelical missions, what we would now call a missionary. Bible translation work came out of the Protestant Reformation. The Catholics sent out priests as missionaries, but they did it along with an army. You know, when the Spaniards came to Central and South America, the, they made the native people convert to Catholicism or die. That isn't conversion. Hello? Hello? And the French did it in North America, and the English did it in India and other places because they are a state church. So... The difference is that the Protestants, the Anabaptists and the Moravians and the Methodists and the Lutherans went out and they converted people through discussion, through ideas, through faith, through scripture. And if you look at world history on a timeline, you can see the the cultures and the locations where Catholic missionaries went versus where protestant missionaries went the cultures are very different even the economies are better where the protestants went there's more political freedom there's more economic freedom there's more women's rights there it's just when people were forced to convert to christianity at the point of a sword by a king who was catholic that isn't conversion and it actually makes them hate real christianity And so they weren't converted, but the Protestants went out and served people and loved people and worked hard and preached the gospel. There was no military armies that went along with them to force people to convert. And so when people did convert, it changed cultures. It changed societies. So what we would now call a modern missionary and Bible translation work is absolutely a Protestant, the uh, the fruit of the Protestant Reformation. I want to clarify one thing, the modern Catholic Church, I don't know of any modern Catholic who defends the Catholic Church of the 1400s, all right, so nothing I'm saying today is condemnation of the current Catholic Church, nothing, you all heard me preach that weeks ago, you know where I stand on that, there are Protestants, you could find them, uh, who would say no Catholic is saved and they're, they're all Antichrist. you could find Catholics that would tell us we aren't saved. Uh, if you're not in the church, then you're not headed for heaven. But for the most part, the people who really know Jesus, no matter what brand they put on their Christianity, we're all on the same team. All right. We're all brothers and sisters. And I I don't know very many Catholics personally. I know a bunch of former Catholics and you're here in the room and you have your beefs with the Catholic church. And, and I understand that. And I haven't been there. I don't know exactly you know, what all those are, but I've heard your stories. And so I understand that. But but the Catholics that I do know and the ones that I read and, and trust, and there are even some that I love dearly, they understand that we're all on the same team. The Catholic Church today admits the Protestant Reformation needed to happen. It needed to happen. Nobody is defending that, and nobody is doing that anymore. All right? The church is not selling indulgences. The Catholic Church is not selling salvation anymore. It needed to happen. But we're not remembering and honoring these heroes of the Reformation in condemnation of the Catholics of today yes y'all with me how does this relate to us today well because the church is still in need of reformation martin luther and the others in their day had to fight a corrupt system where a false christianity had allied itself with the government and was forcing immorality and lawless godlessness on people We are in that system today. We think that we've got God all figured out and that our Christianity is good, but in Revelation 3, Jesus tells the Laodicean church, you have a reputation for being alive, but I know you are dead. We're actually living in one of the darkest times in church history. And when we meet Jesus and we see the timeline of history, we're going to see that we live in a time when there is an alliance between false Christians and the government forcing immorality on people. And somebody's got to have the guts to stand up and say, this is not scripture. This is not true. This is not what God said. And I tell you that they were selling salvation. And you all that didn't know about that are like, they did that? I'm telling her to tell you today, we are still selling indulgences. The church still sells indulgences. Martin Luther, in his 95 thesis, says to the Pope, when you sell salvation, you are damning people because their faith is in the piece of paper that they bought because they don't know any different. But they're on their way to hell because their faith is not in Jesus Christ. And now today, we've got millions of Christians going out and telling people in the world, you don't need to be afraid of hell. There is no sin. God loves everybody. Jesus is your best friend. And they're on their way to hell. And we're selling indulgences. Don't ever tell anybody they don't need to worry about hell. That is the worst lie you could tell somebody who is not saved. You must come to Jesus Christ or else. And we've got so-called Christians going out to the world and apologizing for real Christians, preaching the truth telling them that that's not the gospel. It's selling indulgences. It is giving people false security that God loves them and that they're okay when they're not. God does love them, but that's not the truth, that they're okay. We're in need of serious reformation. When Martin Luther is agonizing in his conscience trying to find peace and salvation What's different from him and everybody else around him is that he feared God. He's got the fear of God in his heart. And when he finally found faith and the truth of Scripture, what we call the Protestant Reformation, was a revival. It was a revival of the fear of God. We have to know the truth and we have to follow God in truth. And everything else out there that's called Christianity is a lie. And we're in the same boat today. I gave you the Nashville Statement five, six weeks ago. It's just a basic Christianity 101 definition of sexual purity and sexual sin and what the Bible teaches and what Christianity has believed for 2,000 years and what we have always taught. This is an article by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield who signed that document. She is a former lesbian, a professor at Syracuse University who was living as a lesbian. Our Lutheran pastor and his wife invited her to their house for dinner, and she said, I went. I was ready to fight I was going to fight them they didn't fight me they loved me we were friends we hit it off I expected them to condemn me and judge me and they didn't so they invited me back so I went back and they invited me back again and I went back and we became friends but they told me the gospel they told me what the bible said and I was intrigued I was interested, I was attracted to Jesus, I began to read the Bible myself, and I saw in there that I needed Jesus Christ, so she got born again, she got saved, living as a lesbian, she accepts Jesus Christ as her Lord, and immediately she begins to realize, I'm not obeying him. So 20 years ago, she left her lesbian life, and rejected all of that, and she wrote this about why she signed the Nashville Statement, the document that defines basics of what the Bible says about sexual sin and sexual purity this is the best uh, article I've ever read on sin and repentance it is fantastic please please read this she doesn't write about her conversion experience in this but other places she has she's written a book books I think maybe that you can read if you're interested but she said these people loved me and enough to tell me the truth not to tell me that I was okay with God and what I was doing. Hello? Please read this. It is my opinion that the Nashville Statement that was released just a few months ago, when we get to, to be, have a heavenly perspective in the timeline of history, when Jesus returns and we see world history, I think the Nashville Statement is every bit as important as the 95 Thesis. It's, it's literally creating history. It's writing the kingdom of heaven, history of the world. And you need to know what it is. You, I gave you a copy weeks ago. If you weren't here that Sunday, I have more. I can give them to you. Uh, please read this. Please read the Nashville Statement. We've got to have people today who will not indulge the world's sin, but who will go out and preach the truth even if it costs us our head. Right. Because there is a corrupt system of false Christianity and the government that's forcing sin on people and telling them they're Okay not only approving it but forcing it and it's not alright we've got to love people enough to speak the truth this is not just a history lesson the more things change the more they stay the same huh yeah do not indulge people's sin they've got to know the true word of God that's what the heart of the reformation is and we're still living it today and we still need it today today Amen. Lord, we bless you and praise you. We ask for your truth and your boldness to live in our day what our forefathers and our foremothers had to live in their day. Thank you for their example and the story of their faith and of your faithfulness to them, Lord. Some that lost their heads and were burned at the stake and others that succeeded in what they were doing, Lord. You gave the fruit as you saw fit. Give us the boldness and truth and love to do in kindness what we need to do, Lord. To speak the truth, to set people free, to bring the warning of divine judgment that is coming. Lord, may we only live in the truth of your word and the leadership of your Holy Spirit, not in vain traditions of men. Lord, renew our minds. Teach us what is really true, and not what we've been told is true by people who don't know you. We choose now to say yes to your word, regardless of whatever else we have been taught. We say yes to you and to your word. Give us your truth, give us your freedom, give us your boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.